So I am very grateful to both my father and to Isaac Hahn for their willingness to preach these past two weeks. Uh, we've taken a little break um, from the study of the Gospel of Mark, but now we're getting back into it. And we are, uh, normally what I would do is I would situate our text. I would say the disciples and Jesus were here and they moved to this place and now this is happening. Our current text, though it comes immediately after Jesus walking on the water and his healing of the sick in Gennesaret, doesn't really have a time. We're not exactly sure. Scholars aren't exactly sure um, where this exact story fits in the timeline of the gospel narratives. Uh, it just kind of happens. Now when the Pharisees gathered, that's all, that's all we know. We don't know the place where they were either. Um, nevertheless, we are back into uh, the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And uh, here they are. They've, they've, they've gathered together. They're eating. And there's some concern on behalf of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so let's go ahead and turn to God's word and read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're going to read uh, 23 verses, so a bit of a chunk, but verses 1 uh, to 23, chapter 7, 1 to 23. Hear God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters in, not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, 
foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts uh, to hear your word, that we would be reminded um, certainly of the things that come from within us that are ugly, but also that which cleanses us. Point us to Jesus, we ask, as we look at your word this morning, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is about hand-washing, how apropos, right? Uh, If nothing else, this pandemic is helping us be more hygienic. And maybe, you know, they said of uh, the people during the Great Depression uh, that that after the Depression, they continued in those patterns of not being wasteful and being more thrifty and maintaining stuff. Uh, Maybe they'll say of our generation that we are more hygienic, more cleanly after this pandemic passes over. Who knows? Our text this morning is about hand-washing, but it has nothing to do with hygiene. It has to do with ritual cleansing that has its roots back in the Old Testament law concerning priests particularly. Back in Exodus chapter 30, we read about the the placement of a basin in the court of the tabernacle. And this basin of water stood between the altar and the house of meeting. And every time the the priests were to go into the house of meeting, they would wash themselves. And every time they would go to make an offering on the altar, they would wash themselves. Um, Now, over time, that was obviously a symbolic ritual that had... Um, very harsh stipulations if it was broken, but nevertheless, it was a symbolic act. But over time, at least as early as the second century BC, it seems that it became tradition for Jews to also follow the priestly purity laws before they would eat, um, before they would offer their prayers. And you can read about it in the, ba- uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. Um, there's one particular blessing that says that goes like this, and it's to lay people, not just to the priests. And the blessing says this, Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to wash our hands. Um, sort of. He commanded the priests to wash their hands. But we'll look at this a little bit more in detail. But later in Jewish tradition, not only did they do this before prayer, as I mentioned, but they also did it in preparation for eating food. And this became the tradition that is described here in our text. Um, It also has some touches on some laws that are uh, stated in the book of Leviticus concerning washing after you have touched something unclean. So if you were to touch something that was uh, ceremonially unclean, uh, someone with a discharge or something to that effect, then you would have to ceremonially clean as well um, because you were defiled. Um, But the ultimate reason for these Old Testament regulations with regard to all these ceremonial cleansings was that by nature, we are unclean. We are defiled. And we heard this read earlier in the service, uh, those words from David in Psalm 51 that said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. All the hand-washing in the world cannot remove the stain of sin. 
from our heart. So as we look at our text this morning, I want this to be our prayer, David's prayer. Create in us a clean heart, O God. And we'll look at this in three parts. First, the deceitfulness of our hearts. Secondly, the defiled nature of our hearts. And then finally, this glorious truth that God is greater than our hearts and can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first, the deceitfulness of our hearts. The Pharisees and the scribes uh, from Jerusalem saw Jesus' disciples, it says, eating without having washed their hands, and they confronted Jesus. Mark gives us uh, the uninitiated, us Gentile readers particularly, a little bit of an aside. He gives us a glimpse into the world of the Jews of the first century, and he explains to us that this washing was not just about washing hands before eating, but it extended to all sorts of things, to utensils and pots. Uh, There are actually two words for washing here in the text. Um, There's this idea of hand washing, and what they would do is they they would cup their hands, and they would just pour just enough water that it would run through their fingers, and they would rub their fingers, and that was it. That was sort of hand washing. But then if they went to the marketplace, it says there was another description um, they, that they would wash. That, that word for wash is a little different and seems to be more all-encompassing washing. So if you were to go into the marketplace, um, uh, you would do a little more washing. And Mark explains to us two things that I think are, that, that stand out here in his little explanation. The first thing that he highlights is that Mark identifies the washing ceremonies as the tradition of the elders. Jesus will also repeat this word. And it's an important point. The disciples and Jesus, by not washing, by not doing that ceremonial cleansing, were not breaking the law of God. They were breaking these traditions of the elders. We saw something similar earlier in the Gospel of Mark with regard to healing on the Sabbath. The other thing that I want to point out, and we'll we'll look at that first point in kind of in some detail as we think about what's going on here. But this other point I just want to note is that Mark mentions that the the washing happens particularly after returning from the marketplace. And why is that? Well, of course, it was in the marketplace where people would meet and interact with the unclean, the Gentiles particularly. And Mark is hinting at something here. Um, There's a contrast between what the Pharisees and the scribes would do and what Jesus himself would do. In the coming chapters, uh, we will see two particular uh, healings, one of a Syrophoenician uh, woman in her faith and then one of a deaf man. In both cases, they are from Gentile regions, presumably Gentiles. And then there's another feeding of 4,000 that happens likely in the Gentile regions. There's almost a, a flipping on the, on the head of this, of this clean and unclean. Jesus goes out to the Gentiles, to the unclean, and, and, and engages with them, whereas the Pharisees withdraw themselves, presuming that they are making themselves more holy. And Jesus is flipping that on his head. So those are two things that I wanted to note just from Mark's little parenthetical comment here. But after the aside, we have the confrontation of these religious leaders. Uh, Why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? Why do they not follow the tradition of the elders? And I I would say, I think that from our vantage point, um, 
it's easy for us to see the, the foil of the Pharisees, right? They, they're kind of, they kind of set there as the foil to Jesus all the time. We see sort of them as the negative, as, as the, the one who, the adversary, if you will, of Jesus. And so I think it can be hard for us sometimes um, to apply what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts to ourselves. Um, we can see their showy religiosity and how they were only concerned with outward uh, faith. So we have to take a little bit of work to, to examine our own hearts. Um, from their perspective, from the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus and his disciples were upending their world, their system. Now, anywhere you go in the world, there are cultural taboos. And I'm sure if we were to sit together, we could come up with some in our own state, or in our own towns, in our own uh, communities, uh, traditions and manners that might cause social discord if they're broken. Um, I'll let you think about what those are. But, but what makes the Pharisees and the scribes' concern a little deeper is that they viewed their traditions not simply as cultural norms, but as moral standards. They were inferring them from actual Old Testament laws, but they viewed them as binding on the conscience. While it may be hard for us to imagine ceremonial washings, it's not something we do religiously, um, I think Christians have throughout time been pretty good at coming up with extra laws, with traditions of the elders, if you uh, want to put it that way. Um, there's that hackneyed adage um, about fundamentalists uh, and their rules, and it goes something like this. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Now, I think pretty much if you grew up in the Christian world, you probably heard that at some point as maybe tongue-in-cheek. Um, but it wasn't tongue-in-cheek at a time. But it's not just drinking or smoking, and it's not just fundamentalist Christians that also kind of stand for us sometimes, in, as the Pharisees do, who add laws. I don't think it's just those people. I, in fact, I think it's something that we are all prone to do. We want some way to measure our righteousness, our relative merits compared to others. Now, just to throw out a few, and there's, there's myriad of them. Maybe it's the measure of how reformed you are, right? Some of you may be in that camp. Or maybe it, it's how much social justice warrior you are. You know, it gives you a sense of pride, and you can look down on those who might fight less. Or maybe it's whatever political stripe you are, you feel as more Christian than the other. Or maybe it's your Christian freedom itself. When others feel conscience-bound, and you flaunt your freedom, that itself becomes a badge of righteousness. And these are just a few. It is so easy for us to fall into the trap of looking down on others who don't measure up. And Jesus shines a light here in the text on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrine, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's the key phrase here. 
That's the reason that their hearts, in, in, in Isaiah, the, the people's hearts, are far from God and that their worship is in vain. It's because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And to emphasize this point, Jesus actually reiterates it. He, he says it, he quotes it, and then he says it. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he even says it stronger because he's saying, not only do you put it sort of on par with Scripture, with the commandments of God, but you leave the commandments of God behind. And let me show you how. Let me, let me give you an example how. This is what Jesus says to hammer his point home. He paints an ugly illustration and it must have been a pointed illustration because we notice that after this, the, the, they don't talk anymore. The scribes and Pharisees, at, at, at least at this point, they seem kowtowed, shamed. Um, and he's, he, he brings this picture uh, comparing the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you. And, and not only that, uh, said, he quotes it, uh, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The strong condemnation that comes from the one who dishonors father and mother. But then he contrasts that with what they do. He says, but you do this. He says, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is, We'll get another aside from Mark. Mark gives us a lot of explanation in the text. Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. In other words, what would happen is if they had resources, um, they could somebody could declare it as Corban, as a gift to God. And, but they didn't have to go and then take it to the temple and give it away. They could hold on to it, but it was sanctioned, meaning that nobody could touch it. And except them, they could use it as they wanted. And it was sort of a way to maintain sort of your wealth without feeling the guilt of having to give it away, maybe to your parents, uh, for example, who needed it. Um, and so they would dishonor their parents by claiming some religious right, this korban, this tradition. Um, and he says at the end of this, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. What does he mean? He means you've nulled the fifth commandment and you've placed your tradition as more significant, more weighty, more important than even honoring your father and mother. Tradition trumps commandment. And in doing this, by telling this illustration, this pointed uh, condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes, he exposes their hearts. He exposes their hearts. Jesus' illustration exposes the real problem with the additional lawmaking. You see, they're born with sinful hearts and the motivations behind the laws are not honoring to God. In fact, those laws were created for their own glory, their own good. They may not have thought about it that way when they were created, but that's, that's how sin twists good things and changes them. Jeremiah 17.9 says of our hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I think sometimes we don't even realize our motivations are wrong when we go about creating new measures, new, new ways of sort of looking at, uh, our, uh, new ways of, of sort of showing our righteousness. We don't, we don't think of it in those terms. We may genuinely think that we're trying to please God in some way. We, we may think that we're trying to place extra barriers between us and sin. Not necessarily a bad thing. And I want to say as a caveat here that it is not wrong inherently to abstain from things that are not expressly forbidden in Scripture or to do things not explicitly or specifically commanded as an outworking of your love for God. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And in fact, wisdom may dictate that you ought not to say drink or smoke or chew. It could be a very good thing for you. But the issue of the Pharisees and the scribes is that they made their freedom to wash their hands as a sign into a law for others and as a sign of their own righteousness. What we need to do is to be aware of our tendency to want to make manageable legal requirements, right? That's what we do. We make manageable legal requirements for ourselves by which we earn favor in our minds with God and within the community of believers. That's what we do. And this brings me to my second point because I want to spend a little bit of time on the why. Why is it that we do this? Why is it that our hearts do this? Why do we make our own manageable legal requirements, right? Why do we do that? And the reason is that we desperately want to be clean. But our hearts, by their very nature, are unclean, and they cry out against us. And if we can make this little manageable requirement, we can feel better about ourselves. This is my second point. Our hearts are defiled. The Pharisees took the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament and extrapolated them in order to assuage their consciences before God. In doing this, they missed the very reason for the cleanliness laws in the first place. Those narrow ceremonial laws of ritual cleansing in the Old Testament were meant to point the Israelites to the real issue, to their real need, that they needed to be cleansed, that they had a heart problem, a heart condition. And Jesus explains this to the crowd. He turns from his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes, and he turns to the crowds and he says to them, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, the first half of this is fairly straightforward. Uh, Jesus goes into a home with his disciples and his disciples are still wondering what's going on. But, But Jesus explains it to them. Um, and, and the first part, I think, is fairly obvious. In fact, I think Jesus plays with this idea of the obvious nature of it a little bit. There's a little bit of humor and a little bit of uh, pointedness in Jesus' words to his own disciples. Um, the ESV is very discreet. Uh, it uses the word, if you'll notice here, it says, if you eat something, it doesn't go into your heart, it goes into your stomach, and then, well, it's expelled. The ESV is discreet, uses the word expelled. The KJV, of course, as usual, is a little more colorful in its language, if not a little bit 
obtuse because we don't always know what the words mean. Um, but it uses this. It says it goes into his stomach and it goeth out in the draft. Like that. You put on a British accent when you use the King James. Um, but here's the modern kitty language. It goes into your belly and then into the potty. That's, that's what it says. That's what the text says. It goes into the potty. That's what the, the Greek says. You see, I think Jesus was a little frustrated with his disciples because they, as usual, were dull. They didn't grasp the significance of what he had said, either to the Pharisees or to the crowd. Don't you get it? Can't you see? The food you eat is food. It's digested and it's eliminated. That's the NASB, by the way. Washing hands, cleaning pots and pans doesn't make you clean. Mark makes another aside here, noting that it was at this point that Jesus was declaring all flu foods clean. Before this, they had regulations about what kinds of foods that they could eat. Though it seems that at this point in practice, uh, it wasn't something necessarily that they followed. But when we get to after the resurrection and ascension, um, and Peter has that vision of the net full of all sorts of animals, that, that this uh, truth sort of comes to life. But here's the thing. There is nothing you can do to cleanse yourself because the problem is not outside of yourself. It's inside of you. All those Old Testament laws concerning the various animals and the cleanings all pointed to a spiritual reality. The Pharisees and scribes thought if they could just eliminate all outside defilement, if they could truly circumscribe themselves, be holy, be completely and utterly set apart from the unclean world around them, then God would be pleased with them. And I think that this is something that we often try to do ourselves to one degree or another. And I'm going to speak as a parent because I think we as parents are notorious for doing this. Let me explain. As a parent, we look at our kids and we see attitudes and actions, maybe words or sinful desires in our children. And our immediate first thought is, where did Johnny learn to do that? Right? It couldn't be my kid who did such a thing or said such a It must have been the outside influences. It must be those bad apples that they've been hanging out with. And why do we do this? I think we do this because it's very hard for us to admit that the sin that we see in our kids not only is from their hearts, but it's a reflection of the very sin that is in our own hearts. Oftentimes because it is the very same sin. Wouldn't it be so much easier if we could blame all our sin on others, on our circumstances, on the way we've been mistreated throughout our life, on our spouses, on our parents, or because we didn't get enough sleep, or because we were just hangry, whatever that word means, or because of the weather, or because we were a little sick, or we were just stressed out, or we were just a little down, 
or whatever it is. We find all ways to say the sin that is in me isn't by nature there. It's something that the outside has affected in me. It's not, it's not really who I am. I'm a good person. That's who I am. Now, it's certainly true that all those factors play into our sin, exacerbate our sin, but it is our sin. What is truly hard for us is to come to grips with the reality of our own hearts. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew to the Pharisees, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus says here in Mark chapter 7, right in our text, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I think this is a difficult pill for us to swallow. It means facing ourselves not as a victim, but as the perpetrator. As Nathan said to David after his adultery and murder, two things that Jesus just mentioned in this list of things that come out of the heart, he said to Nathan, or Nathan said to David, you are the man. So it is when we are faced with these words of Jesus, what comes out of us is what defiles us. For some of you this morning, this may be a shocking blow. That you're really guilty. That you are defiled. That it comes from you, from within your heart. And from in that darkness of your heart come these evil thoughts and and it's not something you can escape. It's not something you can wash away. But I think it's also at this moment, in that, in that moment of shock and distress, that we have to hear the, these glorious words. God is greater than our hearts. And he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, Jesus was on a mission to bring about the cleansing of his people. In the Old Testament, all the ceremonial laws about cleaning pointed forward to that desperate need we all have. And all the sacrifices and sprinklings and baptisms of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. Ezekiel said it well. We read it earlier in our, in our uh, uh, service I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, we cannot wash enough. Like Lady Macbeth, we look at the spot and we scrub and we wash to no avail. 
We try to fashion ourselves manageable laws, ways to trick ourselves into thinking, I'm okay. All for naught. What we need is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He alone can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he calls us to run to him. To find forgiveness in him. And freedom in him. And did you hear those words of Ezekiel? Not only does he put a spirit within us, but he causes us to walk in newness of life. He gives us his spirit that we can actually obey. That we can actually live unto righteousness. Not in our own strength, but by the mighty power of his spirit in us. In him we're clean. And though our skins be as scarlet, they are washed as white as snow. Let's pray.